It's Tuesday, June 16th. We're studying 2 Peter. We're in 2 Peter chapter 3. And the verse today we've reached is verse number 15. You remember we got a new paragraph going here in verse 14. Since you're waiting for these things, which we've seen a lot of that word in these last few verses, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. And here's something for us to understand, our verse for today, verse 15, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Interesting phrase, we'll figure that out. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. According to the wisdom given him. There we go. Uh, and we're going to continue on because there's a lot to say about this in the next verse, verse 16. But today, let's deal with this. First of all, let's just recount what we're dealing with in our context. Verse number 9, you might remember, said he's not slow. I mean, it is taking a long time, and from our perspective, even longer. He's not slow to fulfill his promise. He's going to keep it. He says, but he's patient. There's our word, macrothemia, um, long-suffering long toward you. And the point is, he's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This idea of the patience of God from the first epistle, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, speaking of the time in the days of Noah, and it said, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. So the idea of patience here is the patience in the fact that he is not bringing judgment. And the reason he's not bringing judgment is because he wants to see salvation. And salvation, you remember, is contingent on repentance. But in this period of time, we have the patience of God being reflected in the fact that not only is he withholding judgment, but he's dispensing his kindness. So a little bit on the common grace of God. That's a phrase we should be familiar with. You talk about the special or saving or redemptive grace of God, but we need to think about the fact that he is giving common grace in so many ways to people that will, will be judged, and they're actually earning and storing up more judgment. But right now, he is being kind to them in the common grace he gives everyone. And a passage that we need to uh, think through here perhaps uh, would be good for us. Matthew chapter 5 verses 43 through 48. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor but hate your enemy. That's how people normally function. But I say to you, love your enemies, which doesn't mean you feel good about them, by the way. This verb right here is a commitment to their well-being, to do good to them, and pray for those who persecute you. Not that they'll have a great life, but that they'll reach repentance and that maybe there will be things in their lives that might lead them to their repentance. And if you do that, he says, you'll be, you'll be sons of your Father who's in heaven. This is not a way for you to get saved. Saved, but it is a way in which you reflect the God who saved you, who is a God who does these things. And here's the rationale, middle of verse 45. For he makes his son, remember it is his ball of fusion out there, he makes it rise on the evil and the good. So it's nice warming the earth, it's shining on the crops, the photosynthesis on the evil person's crops and on the righteous person's crops. It's all working because of the common grace of God and he waters their crops, right? He sends his rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? So you can't live by this principle here because everyone does that. If you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you must be, here's the word teleos, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You must do the right thing, and the right thing right now to be sons of your Father in heaven is to show that common grace, even to people that don't deserve it. And that's what's happening now. The patience of God is translated in two things, not only the withholding of judgment, but the kindness that he shows. And the kindness that he shows in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, says that that kindness we should not presume upon, he's speaking here to non-Christians, you shouldn't presume upon the riches of the kindness or or here's a word, forbearance, or here's our word, macrothermia, or patience. You shouldn't presume upon that. You should know this, 
And of course, that's the problem. They're not knowing when they do presume that God's kindness here is meant to lead you to repentance. Because though of your hard and impenitent hearts, your unrepentant hearts, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of God's wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So this has been the theme of 2 Peter chapter 3. The judgment of God is coming. Actually, 2 Peter chapter 2 as well. But on that day when God judges the world, we're to be reminded that that kind of accounting is not in any way slack and God is not slow in that. He's not overlooking all of that. But in the meantime, what he's doing, he's showing kindness. He's showing forbearance. He's showing patience. He's withholding what we deserve. So the patience of God means salvation. It means salvation in the sense that according to Luke 24, if we reach repentance, right, we have forgiveness. It's written that Christ should suffer on the third day rise from the dead. This is where Jesus is explaining the scripture. Verse 47 says that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. So the goal is to see our sins forgiven. The goal is to see people's sins forgiven. And all of that is contingent on and hinges on repentance. At least that's the human experience of reaching the place of brokenness over our sin, turning from our sin, putting our trust in God. And all of that is being accommodated. It's actually being prompted by the fact that God is bringing you the truth through the scripture in the midst of a time when we should be being judged, but instead he's waiting. And in our sense, like Noah's day, we want to see people more, more people get on the ark and not just, you know, eight people make it through. We want to see a lot of people make it to the place of uh, redemption and forgiveness and safety. And so all of that is translating a very basic concept that if God has not judged the world yet, all of that patience is because of God's salvation. And we are to be agents of that salvation. And this gets back to the word hastening in our passage we studied not long ago, 2 Peter chapter 3. Since all these things are be dissolved, unloosed, uh, let go, God's judgment is going to come and everything's going to fall apart. And it's going to fall apart in a cellular way, right? All the way to the building blocks of the world. What sorts of people ought you to be in holiness and godliness? Well, there's the pastoral concern about our behavior. But we are to be waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. And if we know that the only reason he's waiting is because he wants to see salvation, that he's waiting so that people will come to repentance, then again, we translate this in its larger context to know that the hastening happens, at least the hurrying of this day from our perspective, though it doesn't change the schedule, the picture is when everyone gets on the ark that needs to be on the ark, then the floods come, then the new world is inaugurated, and everything is the way it ought to be. And all of that should be in our minds when we think about the heavens being set on fire and and loose, there's our word again, uh, or destroyed, the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. All of that should remind us that the patience of the Lord, while that ha- why that hasn't happened yet, is all about people coming to faith in Christ. Now, let's look at this next phrase. As our beloved brother Paul, just as our beloved brother Paul has written, just as he wrote, and, and we could look at what Paul said. Paul wrote so much in the New Testament, obviously, all those epistles that speak of the coming wrath. I've already quoted some. We don't need to look at that. But I want to look at this phrase right here, our beloved brother Paul wrote, because the idea of the relationship that Peter has and that he affirms of the office, not only the relationship, but the office he has, is a reminder of Paul's authority and Peter seeing him joining that apostolic authority. And I want to take you to Galatians chapter 2 just to to look at that together in verse 7. He says, when I saw that I'd been entrusted with the gospel, and this is the autobiographical section of Galatians as Paul is talking about the fact that he didn't receive this authority, he didn't receive this message from anyone but God. And it says, when he 
realized that when he saw that he'd been entrusted with the gospel to the Gentiles, the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been, by contrast, entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. That's why Peter is the focus of Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 10. And then after that, we have the transition. We have Paul's conversion. Saul of Tarsus turns into Paul the apostle. Uh, he's about to become the apostle, but he's converted in Acts chapter 9. And then we see the whole transition in the second half of Acts. So we see this comparison and contrast. But it says, for he, parenthetically, verse number 8 of Galatians 2, worked through Peter, this is Paul talking now, for his apostolic ministry. Right? He was one of the representatives that has the message of God in that apostolic slash prophetic ministry of him bringing the truth to the generation that he was speaking to that would be codified for the rest of us for the rest of time. He says, ministry, his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me. So Paul says, now, mine to the Gentiles. And when James, and remember Cephas is another, it's the old way that uh, they referred to Peter, the old uh, reference of Peter, James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived, they understood, that the grace was given to me, right? The grace of what? The apostolic ministry. They gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So Peter recognizes Paul's apostleship. And while the apostleship is not distinctly described in 2 Peter chapter 3, we remember that this idea of a beloved brother is more than just he's a Christian. It's that he shares in the apostolic ministry. And I just thought it was interesting to at least point out later in the passage to say that he's the beloved brother. Uh, this, by the way, was written in AD uh, 67. This is Second um, Peter's a later of the general epistles, but Galatians was an early book, and Paul wrote this many years before and described a scene which is obviously predating the writing of this. But to talk about Peter here and Paul's relationship, it's great to see him call him his beloved brother Paul because this is not about petty differences or personal slights because they had problems, they had conflict. He says, Paul said, I opposed Peter when he came to Antioch to his face, right? He rebukes him because he stood condemned. He was doing the wrong thing. For certain men came from James and he was eating with the Gentiles. But when he came, when James showed up, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And we know that Peter was prone to that kind of fear and retraction. And, you know, the denial of Christ clearly was an issue of Peter's timidity. The rest of the Jews ate hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. And of course, Barnabas was Paul's right-hand man. But they saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. He said, when I saw, rather, that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas or Peter before them all, if you, like a, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, right, certainly when these people aren't around, and not like a Jew, then how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And all of this was about the issue of Galatians, about not putting upon the people who are coming to faith in Christ, the Old Testament Levitical ceremonies, including circumcision and the dietary restrictions and all the rest. But I just throw that in just for the sake of saying that when Peter calls him beloved Paul, we know there was some difficulty in the past, and yet they had this good relationship affirming one another because the truth and their apostleship was above all the circumstances of disagreement in the past. And Peter, we can recognize, repented of that, and things are all good by the time uh, AD 67 rolls around and Peter writes this letter. All right. He wrote according to the wisdom given him. And I just don't want to say, well, this is great. He's a great counselor. He has some good insight. We're talking about the kind of wisdom that comes with the apostolic band, with those who are preaching and teaching the word that are part of the apostles who are giving us the truth on which the church is built. 
Ephesians 2.20, the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Paul says it this way. He said, among the mature, because he's talking about the fact that the immature don't get it, they don't understand it, we do impart wisdom, and that's the wisdom we're talking about here. Although it is not a wisdom of this age, it's not that he's the smartest among his peers, uh, or the rulers of the age who are doomed to pass away, this has been our theme throughout chapter 2 and 3, of Second Peter, but we impart a secret or hidden wisdom of God. That may sound Gnostic to you, if you know what Gnosticism is, that secret wisdom. Well, it's not meant to be secret. This is a description of revelation, truth that wouldn't otherwise be known, that was given to the apostles and the apostolic band, and they're revealing it. And that's what he goes on to say, which God decreed before the ages of for our glory, for this generation and the church age's glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, he quotes Isaiah now, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Now he quotes that passage and people say, well, that's great. We can't imagine what it's going to be like. And that's true. And I suppose even I've referenced that because it's a true as a principle, but contextually, that is not how Paul is employing this passage in Isaiah. He's saying this, These things that we couldn't have otherwise known, God has, and here's our doctrine of revelation, revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So the third person of the Godhead knows everything about the depths of the triune God. And it says for a person, and he's parenthetically talking now, who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we who have received, not the Spirit of the world, the we here I'm contending is the apostolic band, right? He says, is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So God is revealing truth to the apostles, and they are imparting it prophetically. And as they get it into writing, God governs that, as we saw in the beginning of our uh, Second Peter epistle, the idea of God's oversight, moving them along by his spirit to impart this truth in writing. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So this wisdom given to him by God is a wisdom that is presented through the act of revelation. And then that revelation, as it's proclaimed, is called prophecy. As it's written, we call it the God-breathed nature of the product, the scripture that God over uh, superintends or rather oversees, superintends and oversees, you can use either phrase, the writing of this inf- information so that we can have this wisdom that was given to him from God. So we're not just talking about general wisdom or insight. So We could say more. I wish we had more time on all these, but 15 minutes is what I allot for it. And tomorrow we're going to be back as we're really near the end of 2 Peter. So stay with us. You've come this far. We're going to finish up the book this week. So we'll uh, be back tomorrow, Lord willing, with more on 2 Peter. 